0: You're listening to a podcast from the University of Manchester. Welcome to a brand new episode of The Buzz. Before we introduce our topic, we assure you'll agree it's been a tough few weeks. We are determined to keep the podcast going. We think it's important to continue to celebrate the work of our faculty colleagues during this time and to share the best of our research and heritage. We apologise that there may be issues with sound quality, but we hope you enjoy what we have in store over the next few weeks. Welcome to an all-new episode of The Buzz. This episode, we're strapping ourselves into our time machine and heading back a few million years to look at a subject that, most likely single-handedly, is responsible for igniting people's love of science. That's right, we're talking dinosaurs. A little bit later, you can hear my chat with Professor Phil Manning and Dr. Victoria Edgerton, who are heading up the Mission Jurassic dig out in Wyoming. It's an extremely exciting project, as the scientists have uncovered a wealth of dinosaur bones, as well as ancient fossilised plants from two distinct prehistoric eras and we also catch up with paleontologist dr russell garwood to learn more about his work examining fossil records and extinction events but before all that we thought we'd take a minute to get really scientific and discuss our favorite dinosaurs because no matter how old you are everyone has one and there's no point in denying it so Myself, Natalie and Joe have each come armed with some facts about our favourite dinosaurs and we're going to take 90 seconds each to convince you why our favourite dinosaur is the best. So Natalie has volunteered to go first so there are 90 seconds on the clock. Take it away Natalie.
1: Okay, so today I'm talking all about the velociraptor and dispelling some of the Jurassic Park myths that the film has created. So, obviously, velociraptors are featured heavily in Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, but the dinosaurs featured in the film were not what you think. So, real velociraptors are about the size of a turkey. You could call them turkey dinosaurs, like that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I know. (laughs) Uh, They're from the late Cretaceous period, so about 74 million years ago. And they walked on two legs like a bird. Um, And they were first discovered, the first fossil was discovered in 1923 in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. So the real velociraptors were actually covered in feathers. Um, So today they'd seem like a bit of a really weird bird of prey, but they had teeth, not a beak. Um, So it'd be like a really scary eagle. Um, they couldn't fly ha- even though they were b- kind of like a bird um, so in the film Jurassic Park it suggests that they would hunt in packs um, and they're very cunning they could outwit humans there has been absolutely no scientific evidence to suggest either of these is true they would just no. probably be, have an average I- IQ just an average bird IQ um, so the ones actually featured in Jurassic Park would have been um, more like a Deinonychus um, and the author of Jurassic Park, the book. So oh, the- no. Oh, I just finished my fact. So, the author said that he only called them velociraptors because it sounded scarier than Dianakos. And that is a velociraptor. And that's why I think they're really cool.
0: Clever girl. okay very very good very interesting and also massively disappointing at the same time
1: crushing dreams Jurassic Park has been one big
0: life yeah crushing dreams with science okay so who's next
2: I'm happy to go next
0: okay Joe the timer is on take it away
2: okay i'll start with a bit of a disclaimer my actual favorite dinosaur is denver the last dinosaur he's our friend and a whole lot more (laughs) Uh, but my favorite real dinosaur is a it's a bit of a classic quite well known it's pretty cool i remember it from my childhood it's the triceratops uh famous of course for its horns The word triceratops literally means three-horned face. So it's got two big horns above its eyes uh, and also a small one on its snout. Uh, It's got a beak a bit like a parrot and a large frill above its neck. So it's very distinctive looking. And that's what I like about it. It's distinctive in its features and its size. it's classically depicted as fighting the t-rex which makes it you know pretty badass um and the males use their horns to fight each other as well and um, they probably did this to impress females uh also the frill was probably used to attract mates uh which makes me think triceratops is probably a bit of a romantic dinosaur or maybe i should say a horny dinosaur <laughs> Um, it, it was basically it was a huge animal, uh, size of a, an African elephant uh, with a body shape like a, a modern day rhino. Uh, could be around nine meters in length uh, and weigh around five thousand five hundred kilograms. And basically, its head was massive. Massive. Uh, the largest skull discovered was over eight foot, and the head could make up around one third of the body. Oh. Oh. Good. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, oh. I'm
0: there. I'm there with okay, you.
2: Okay. Okay. It had up to eight hundred teeth, and it was a herbivore, which uh, obviously means it's a vegetarian. It means it wouldn't eat you. You could maybe even be friends with it. Uh, although they, they reckon that uh, Triceratops might have been a bit of a loner because the bones were found individually, which was unusual for horned animals. Um, and they only moved it around 10 miles per hour, which makes me think that they might have taken life nice and easy, which I like. And that's oh, it. Okay.
1: That sounds like
0: a lovely dinosaur.
2: Wow. I've, I've, um,
0: I've enjoyed your scientific interpretation of a lot of these uh, <laughs> interesting facts. Yes. So a romantic loner. Exactly. <laughs> sounds like you would uh, head up an 80s band, maybe. Yeah. Wrote, Excellent. Wrote poetry. Yeah. So I'm going to take things bigger, guys. Really super, super bigger. Let me just start my timer. I'm here to talk about diplodocus and before we even start diplodocus is the scientific way to say it but it's actually very interesting because there's the pronunciation diplodocus there's diplodocus also the natural history museum is um, going renegade and trying to introduce diplodocus According to the Oxford English Dictionary, all are acceptable. But the BBC pronunciation, I can't pronounce the word pronunciation unit, (laughs) has decided that the correct way to say it is Diplodocus. And as this is a science broadcast, I'm going to be saying Diplodocus the correct way. So Diplodocus was a sauropod which was a long-necked plant eater was one of the most successful groups of dinosaur and it was roughly the size of not one but four elephants its long neck meant it could reach leaves from high trees but also drink water at ground level and it had to eat a lot because it was so huge we're talking 100 feet 33 meters long the neck alone was 20 feet and the tail was even longer and listen to this it's been theorized that they could whip their tails at a supersonic speed to create a crack sound a cracking sound that wouldn't have been unlike the volume of a cannonball going off. Wow. Can you just imagine that. Imagine seeing something the size of four elephants cracking its tail like a cannonball. <laughs> that that is badass. I'm gonna ignore my timer. Um So uh, they think it maybe did this to scare off um, predators. It could also stand on two legs just to make itself look even more terrifying. And in recent depictions, it's been shown with little spikes all along its spine. So it actually looks a bit like a huge stegosaurus, which everyone knows is everyone's second favorite dinosaur. Um, so it was built a bit like a suspension bridge it kind of looks like it shouldn't exist or be able to move but it did Um, it had two rows of bones running under its tail to support it and to help it to move and indeed the greek word diplos or diplos means double and dokos or dokos means beam so its name comes from double beam cool I also, I also have a little theory that your favorite dinosaur links up a little bit with how you saw yourself as a child. And obviously, I saw myself as helpless and in danger at all times from predators. But um, cool. And maybe you, Joe, saw yourself as a romantic loner. Still do. And I was a turkey. A, Natalie. <laughs> a turkey. Anyway, there we go. So I'll leave it to the listeners to decide who's won that round of my favorite dinosaur. That's how it's helps. But. Um, Mm. but next we're gonna we're gonna go to my interview with um professor phil manning who also pronounces it diplodocus to find out a little bit more about mission jurassic i'm here today with professor phil manning professor of natural history um, to talk about Mission Jurassic. So somewhere in the Badlands of Wyoming, and we can't say exactly where as it's top secret, there's a plot of land that will provide an unparalleled glimpse into the Earth's past. So Phil, can you tell us a bit more about this plot of land?
3: Well, it's, it's quite a large chunk of land actually, and it's, it really is in the middle of nowhere. It's a square mile. So 640 acres of delicious rocks right. from the Jurassic period and uh, one half of the site was laid down in what was once uh, a, a tongue of sea that stretched in from where is Alaska now into what is northern Wyoming. But the o- other half of the site is a, a chunk of the Morrison Formation which is basically land deposits stuffed full of dinosaur bones.
0: Well, so I'm assuming it's the being stuffed full of dinosaur bones that makes it so special.
3: Actually, no, it's the rocks themselves that I love. They're beautiful and they record a, a, a transition in environments through time that gives you an unparalleled glimpse of what the world was like 150 million years ago. The icing on the cake is the dinosaurs. I think it's this combination of both the geology and the life itself that was inhabiting what is now the rocks, is giving us a picture of life back in the Jurassic that we couldn't have ever imagined in reconstructing before.
0: And you've been very secretive about the exact location. Why is this?
3: I don't know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. No. We have to be very secretive about localities like this because. When you find a, a rich locality, and I say rich, I mean thousands of dinosaur bones, it's embarrassingly easy to find dinosaur bones here. In fact, you could blindfold me, push me over the edge of one of the quarries, and within a minute I could find a decent sized bone and probably identify it blindfolded, there are so many bones. So you want to protect such sites from folks who themselves want to go unblindfolded and maybe lift a bone from the site, because sadly that does happen sometimes. So. We're working very carefully to protect where this place is somewhere in darkest Wyoming.
0: Right. (laughs) But it's not just dinosaur hunters who are interested in the site, is it? You've also got botanists, chemists and geologists all working there.
3: Dr Victoria Edgerton is a paleobotanist here at the University of Manchester and she's been spending an awful lot of time wading through geological succession at the site and has found some remarkable plant remains and i would be utterly unqualified to tell you how important they are but i know that they are important but what is really good about the site is it's not just we've got plants we've got dinosaurs we've got other animals around at the same time we have got their trackways we've got it's it's it's, if you were to say this is what we need to dig up to reconstruct what the jurassic looked like You would describe what we found basically at the Mission Jurassic site.
0: Right, wow. And what methods are you using to explore the site?
3: Well, we're very lucky because Manchester has an incredible suite of imaging technology that can be deployed. And of course, the main partner who is is basically driving this project, the the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, has been hugely supportive of how we integrate the technologies from Manchester not only into how we analyze the fossils in the field, but also how we can interpret them for the public in future museum exhibitions, which is really exciting. It's getting Manchester science out there at the rock face so kids who want to become scientists in the future will see how we use infrared lasers in the field to map the the geological outcrops so we can look at them again back in the lab also see how we use particle accelerators, synchrotron light sources, to, to shed light on the chemistry of the very bones of the dinosaurs. So we can peel apart what is environmental and what is biological. How we can use infrared light within the lab to look at organic compounds preserved within the fossils. There's, there's a, a, a multitude of techniques that we can deploy from the University of Manchester's imaging suite that allow us new insight into this, this wonderful locality.
0: Have you, fa- have you faced any challenges on the site so far?
3: Every single minute at the site is a challenge for the simple reason you're, you're up against the elements and um, last year the weather was despicable to us on multiple fronts. We had everything from blizzards on site through to temperatures in the mid 40s. It's, it's, it's ridiculous the extremes that you experience. We have like mini tornadoes going through site, dust devils that could pick up. Well, actually you if you're not too careful. Right. I mean, there, there are some serious issues with wildlife as well. Um, if you hear something rattle behind you, it's not someone trying to make music. It is something that's liable to bite you because rattlesnakes are not uncommon at the site. We have scorpions, we have black widow spiders. We, Yes, I can go on. And then of course there's the grizzlies. You know, there's a lot to think about <laughs> yeah. when you're in the middle of nowhere. And then the actual process of getting the bones out of the ground can be Very challenging. You're lifting up bones. Think of, you reach over to your shoulder blade, you can feel it's a few inches long. The shoulder blade of one of the dinosaurs we dug out last year was over two meters long, over six foot four, huge, huge, weighing hundreds of pounds. And you're having to maneuver these delicate things, even though they're big, they're delicate, in the middle of nowhere. So you have to develop techniques to extract them from the ground, carefully wrap them and transport them back to the lab there are challenges at every single step of the process, but I wouldn't change it for anything.
0: Right, so a fair few challenges, but um, what, uh, what other discoveries are you hoping to make? Because um, you're back out there again this summer, aren't you?
3: This summer we, we are hoping to get two of the large sauropods out of the ground completely, which is gonna be a, a huge task, but we're, we're hoping to do it. Um, our colleagues at the Children's Museum and at the Naturalist Biodiversity Centre in Leiden are working with us closely to achieve this goal. I mean, and it's—I I don't think anyone has dug up a sauropod this quickly ever before, or two sauropods, shall I say? It's actually a, a huge task to, to to undertake. On top of that, we're excavating a marine reptile from those ocean deposits. are just below the morrison formation the sundance formation and we got this creature which has an enormous eye it belongs to a group called the ophthalmosaurus um but it's got a name baptanodon it sounds like something from a bat cave yeah but it's um this thing's about three to four meters long and we've got to excavate that this year and we're going to try and get some of the dinosaur footprints out so we go out sometime in may and we'll be there till beginning of september it's a huge amount of work, 12-hour days, some days a week. Sign here and uh, you say goodbye to your life. Yeah. It's wonderful, actually, but it's a, a lot of work.
0: What's the plan for the fossils that you're collecting?
3: All of the fossils which are being dug out of the ground currently are going to be displayed in a new exhibit at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis in Indiana. Uh, we have a close working relationship with this group. They are working with the University of Manchester on multiple fronts, not least to to better the sorry, maybe rephrase that not better. And um, they're working with us to to interpret the exhibit in a way that is using state of the art technology. And and I, I think it's really important that we show the interdisciplinary nature of science to kids today and don't shy away from using the technology and deploying the technology not only that we use to study the dinosaurs and interpret them, but show kids how we're using it. Because They live in a technological age where it's second nature to them. And we need to get them used to how we deploy technology at an early stage. So working with the Children's Museum is exciting because we can show off not only the imaging tech that we use here, but also engage new audiences, which for me is a big deal, because I would have killed to go to such an exhibit when I was a kid.
0: What do you think makes dinosaurs so enduringly fascinating?
3: Oh, gosh, that's a tough question, because I think, I think most people go through a dinosaur phase, but what actually makes them fascinating? Some say it's the sort of monster under the bed syndrome where they're safe, everyone knows they're extinct, so everybody likes them. I, I do tend to joke and call dinosaurs the pink fluffy unicorns of science for the simple reason they are just they don't hurt anyone unless you watch Jurassic Park. But even when you watch something as horrific as Jurassic Park, when the T-Rex is tearing lawyers apart, whatever, yeah. people watch it and laugh at that point. And if it was in any other organism doing the tearing apart, it would be horrific.
0: I think but it helps that the lawyer's on the toilet.
3: That's true, it's, um, it's both toilet humor, lawyer being killed, everything, Well, what's not to like? Um, so it, it, it's quite an, un- <laughs> it, 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 it's a strange thing with dinosaurs. Uh, they've captivated the imagination of humans since their invention. I mean the name dinosaur was coined back in 1842 and I think it was, in, it was first used in literature by Charles Dickin, Dickens in Bleak House, in the first line of Bleak House he says, wouldn't it be strange to see Megalosaurus waddling up old Holborn Hill, <laughs> now you know, dinosaurs completely invaded the, the, the public psyche the minute they were discovered yeah. because they're just so incredible even when you look at some of the largest animals on the planet today, they don't measure up to what we see with dinosaurs. Dinosaurs defy all of our expectations on size, on, on diversity, on just, they're just incredible creatures to study. And the fact they're no longer alive on the planet should get our attention. Because if something's been successful for 175 million years and is extinct, we should pay attention to such things Mm -hmm. because if they were so successful for so long how could such a group disappear? And maybe that's part of the enigma of dinosaurs, I don't know.
0: Which I guess brings me to my next question which is why do you think it's still so important to study dinosaurs at, at this level? So out of the classroom and at dig sites like this?
3: It's fascinating that dinosaurs and other fossils as well Give us hindsight, a hindsight where we can peer back to the past to see how things were then. Why do we need that hindsight? Well when we're planning to do things in the present day that might impact our planet in the future. Say you want to bury something in the ground and you want to tell your children and children's children that what you're putting in the ground is safe. Well you've got to understand what's going to happen to that material when it's buried. And it's hard for us to run experiments for 100 or 1,000 or 2,000 years, or a million years. We have a nasty habit of dying. <laughs> so, we can use the fossil record as a proxy to look at time stamped samples going back in time for a million years, 10 million, 100, half a billion years, and seeing how, when something has been buried in the ground, what from the organism has mass-transferred out into the environment, and what from the environment has impacted that, that fossilization process. And it's mapping this ballet of chemistry through time that helps inform us today of what we're putting in the ground and where it might go in the future. So really the fossil record has real direct applications to the modern world we live in today. There's also the imaging tech that we're developing at the absolute edge of technology where people have never been able to image really large objects in micro-CT systems using x-rays to, to penetrate these giant objects. And we've worked with folks like NASA and Boeing to develop their CT technology so we can get through multi-ton blocks that even, I remember the NASA scientist uh, uh, saying to us, their CT guy, you know, this is the first time we've, we've imaged something this big. By doing this, we can now scan objects we never dreamt of doing. In fact, I remember him joking, you're helping us put people into space by studying dinosaurs. So it's the technology that we're helping to develop as well. So to to view dinosaurs as just, oh look, there's some folks there jumping in the ground, they're looking at bones, grr, dinosaurs, there's far more to the science. Mm -hmm. And how it's connected to multiple disciplines is so critical for us.
0: Um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your own journey into science.
3: <laughs> Gosh, I don't know. Um, everyone has a journey, I suppose. Everyone has a fingerprint when it comes to science and each has their own individual story of how they got there. Mine is a little bit weird, insofar that I'm, I really wasn't sure uh, what I was going to do when I was at school. And um, I, I'm more an accidental scientist. And I did a first degree um, majored mostly in meteorology, applied climatology and atmospheric physics. Not much to do with dinosaurs really, oh. but I still kept my love of dinosaurs and I came to Manchester in 1989 for an interview to work here as a research technician and uh, the Department of Geology then turned around to me and said, Oh, while you're here why don't you do a, a master's degree? So I did and it kicked off really my research career and i suddenly discovered research was far more exciting than being an undergraduate i shouldn't say that really should i <laughs> but it was at the time for me research suited me mm. and my whole career has been based about, around the work that i've done here at the university of manchester and i've i've been very lucky to grow with an astounding team of people but more importantly at an institution that's allowed me to bounce between departments learning new techniques and technologies and how we can apply them to the fossil record. And I think Manchester has a a, a unique approach to how we study the fossil record. And I think we were slightly ahead of the curve because many other institutions are now doing this. But I I really think this quantitative analysis of the fossil record is something that that was spearheaded by the University of Manchester. and I'm extremely proud of that. There's some great work going on here.
0: Um, and finally, I hope you'll forgive me but it would be remiss of me not to ask, what's your favourite dinosaur?
3: Oh gosh, you've just asked me to choose my favourite dinosaur, it's a bit like asking to choose your favourite <laughs> child. You, I, I think in terms of, if I was to pick one that is just simply beautiful and represents so much about the science of paleontology, it would be Archaeopteryx. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the dinosaur bird discovered from the Solnhofen limestone of southern Germany It was discovered, or the first feather was discovered a couple of years after uh, Darwin had published Origin of the Species, and when the first skeleton was found, which had both avian and dinosaurian characters, it was to really be the missing link that Darwin needed to show this transitionary form from dinosaur to bird, and so it's one of these pivotal species in the evolution debate as well, but the fossils are rare, but when you find them, there's only a dozen or so of them, they are absolutely jaw-droppingly beautiful and fossils are beautiful mm. but in this case it's not only beautiful it's also scientifically very very important as, as fossils go so it'll be archaeopteryx
0: right thank you very much good luck with the rest of your dig
3: yeah yeah we've got the summer um fighting with mosquitoes the size of pigeons can't wait for it
0: Last episode, we launched a new feature where we sent kids' questions to our scientists and engineers. You may remember our first question came from Clara, who asked how birds fly. Luckily, Dr. Ben Parslew from the Department of Mechanical, Aerospace and Civil Engineering was there to swoop in with the answer.
4: Hi, thank you for your question about how do birds fly. So to fly, a bird needs to be able to do two things. The first thing is lift itself up and the second thing is push itself forwards. So to lift itself up into the air, a bird has a pair of wings, a bit like an airplane. And as these wings go through the air, the air comes towards the wings and goes over and under them and then gets pushed downwards behind the wing. And as the air gets pushed downwards, that pushes the wing upwards. And that lifts the wing up and lifts the whole bird up into the air. But how does a bird push itself forwards? Well. That's where the flapping the wings comes in. So by flapping the wing up and down, as this air comes towards the wing and goes over and under the wing, behind the wing it gets pushed backwards very, very quickly. A bit like the air coming out the back of a fan gets pushed backwards very, very quickly. And as that air gets pushed backwards, that pushes the wings forwards and carries the whole bird with it. And that's how a bird lifts itself up and pushes itself forward. And that's how they manage to fly. I hope that helps with your question. Thanks. Bye
0: bye. Thanks, Ben. Our latest question comes from Alfie, who asks
1: Why is fire hot?
0: Can any of our scientists and engineers help Alfie? Hopefully, we'll have an answer for him next episode. to mission jurassic and dinosaurs are only half of the story while professor manning has been busy hunting out fossils and bones at the site his partner on the project dr victoria edgerton is looking at the plant life of the time i caught up with her about her research obviously the world that the dinosaurs roamed looked incredibly different to the world today for example there wasn't grass to begin with um can you paint us a picture of this prehistoric world that you're exploring over in wyoming
5: so we're looking at a world about 150 million years ago that was completely different than today. Um, as you said, there were no grasses. Uh, there were no flowering plants, so you didn't have things like magnolias or um, daffodils that are co- like that are coming out right now. In fact, we're dealing with a world that where the predominant tree is are conifers. Things similar to monkey puzzle trees that you see. Um, different types of junipers and uh, different types of pines, or similar to pines, and uh, redwood trees. You're also looking at a ground cover full of ferns and cycads, things like that. So definitely a different world. And what makes this site, the Mission Jurassic
0: site, so valuable for your work in particular?
5: This site is really important because we don't really have much evidence of what the different plants were, particularly in North America during this time. Most of the information we have is based on little fragments, mostly from the southern part of uh, the U.S., but this part has a wealth of information, and we have multiple layers containing different plants.
0: Amazing. And what methods have you been using to explore the site? Because um, forgive me, but um, obviously I know dinosaurs had huge, huge bones to leave behind um, as evidence of uh, their own existence on earth but what sort of thing are you on the lookout for when you study plants
5: prehistoric plants plants can be a bit trickier to find than dinosaur bone the easiest types of plants to find are certainly things like petrified logs or silicified wood and the other types of things that i look for are these black charcoal horizons Um, sometimes those can lead up to some good plant material But honestly, a lot of the time, the plants that we're finding, you can't necessarily see them as easily when you're just looking at the rock face. You have to dig into the rock face to be able to start to identify some of these really nice layers.
0: And what's been your most exciting discovery so far on the site?
5: Oh, gosh, my most exciting discovery. Um well i've got some very very interesting plant fragments that i have no idea what they are if they were from rocks that were let's say 30 40 million years younger so when we're dealing with going into the cretaceous so when we expect to find angiosperms i would be a bit more confident in probably what i'm looking at but these I'm not really sure, and I've had a couple of my paleo- paleobotanist colleagues look at them, and they're not entirely sure what they are either. So that's pretty exciting.
0: A real mystery.
5: It is, and I can't wait to get back into the uh, office and the field to try and look at these a little bit more.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, have you come up against any particular challenges during your work there?
5: <sighs> oh, gosh, um, the challenges... I think the biggest challenge is um, the weather and that I would love to be out there more. I could pretty much be out there 20 hours a day if the light allowed me to.
0: What sort of time does the, the sun go down there? How, how many hours do you get out there? Because I know Phil said that the heat can become unbearable.
5: Yeah, when we're dealing with the weather out there, you're dealing with the extremes. So the extremes being we can have um, extreme heat into the 40s easily and very dry. But we can also get these really intense thunderstorms that'll roll out of what seems like nowhere and can even rain down hail and can lead to tornadoes. So we have to be really careful about that.
0: So people get so caught up with dinosaurs from such a young age, um, they often forget that there was a whole planet of prehistoric flora as well. Why do you think it's so important to study and understand this side of past life on Earth?
5: Oh, plants are absolutely fantastic. I mean, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for what we eat and the air we breathe, and that is all because of the plants. And when you look outside, you don't see animals everywhere what you actually see everywhere are plants and without these plants they wouldn't have pushed evolution to go in some of the directions or at least vertebrate evolution in the different directions it has gone
0: how does um plant life influence uh fauna in its evolutionary path
5: that's a great question um so with plants one of the biggest evolutionary steps at least for our species, has been the evolution and modern and uh, modernization of the agricultural realm. And in order to do that, everything we eat today are flowering plants. So everything from the wheat we eat through to the fruits and vegetables; these are all flowering plants. And If these flowering plants hadn't existed, our species probably would not be as successful or certainly gone in the direction it has gone because most other groups, like gymnosperms and conifers, we can't eat. Our bodies can't digest it. Right. So that has really made a huge influence on just even our species alone. Right, wow. And can this knowledge
0: that we're gaining um, from the past about, plants and the role they play in life on Earth, can that help us to solve or address any of the challenges that the planet's facing at the moment?
5: Oh, absolutely. With When it comes to plants, plants have dominated pretty much every environment there is at some point in Earth's history, or at least when we're dealing with things like latitudinal changes. So plants we know we're at both poles at some point in Earth's history. The most recent being the Cretaceous, during the time of the dinosaurs. Um, And that includes, so in Antarctica, for example, we know that there were temperate rainforests down covering the poles. Today, we don't get plants at the poles, and this has more to do with the temperature than necessarily to do with the, let's say, light regime. The six months of light, six months of darkness. And so as we're, cha- we're getting these changes in the global climate, we're looking at the latitudinal expansion or the plants migrating northward into new areas where we've never seen plants. And by understanding the plants in the past and how they adapted to these different environments can help us understand more about the way that plants are going to adapt in the future to these changing environments.
0: Right. Wow. Um, would, you be able to tell, would you be able to tell me a little bit about your own journey into science?
5: Oh, my own journey into science. <laughs> 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 well, uh, for me, I always loved geology. I was absolutely fascinated by rocks from the time I was three years old. I would play with my grandmother's rock collection, and I loved looking at the beautiful amethysts. And my dad and grandfather used to tell me stories about my grandmother who had a fascinating life. Uh, When I was, she died when I was very young and she was one of the first occupational health uh, nurses or therapists in the world. Oh, wow. Um, And she was fascinated by natural history and knew all these plants and animals and rocks by name. And I thought that was the most interesting thing. And I wanted to be just like that. And so I just started to read as much as I could growing up. Um, I lived on the bayous of Mississippi, right? So I got to see lots of alligators, um, all sorts of different wildlife uh, growing up. And I think for me, it's just a love of nature. And that's why I decided to go into the science is because I love nature I love being outside and I want to learn as much as there is to know about it right um so when we spoke to Phil
0: it was only a few weeks ago but obviously a lot has changed now um coronavirus means that we're all staying in our homes and especially international travel has been limited so i know that the plan was for you to return to the mission jurassic dig site in may um do you know uh, anything about where the project stands now for this year
5: right now the project stands on pause is the best i can say um obviously we have to see what happens um, in the coming months both over here in the UK but also in the US because the most important thing is is the safety of the crew and that's what we have to keep in mind before we finish any or make any definitive plans. Of course yeah
0: Um, and finally um, I couldn't I couldn't do this interview without asking what's your favorite dinosaur?
5: Allosaurus fragilis. Okay, how come? Allosaurus fragilis has always been my favorite ever since I was a kid because it is the most klutzy dinosaur, (sighs) I swear. Okay, I know that's probably not the best thing to say, but um, Allosaurus fragilis has a lot of bone pathologies. Right. So the allosaurs tend to break their bones quite a bit, especially one particular toe bone. And so I've always been interested in paleopathology or the study of ancient diseases, uh, particularly in dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And it's just so fascinating to hear about these animals and it tells us a little bit more about the life they lived as individuals and also as a group, which I think is pretty cool. That's really interesting. I'd never thought about
0: a klutzy dinosaur before. So well, (laughs) learn something new every day. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for um, taking the time to answer our questions. And we've got everything crossed that you'll be back on the dig site soon.
5: Yeah, definitely. And I know there are a bunch of Manchester students that are really keeping their fingers crossed.
0: Earlier this year, our colleague Dave Espley spoke to paleontologist Dr Russell Garwood about his research into fossils and asked him to explain why it's relevant today.
6: So my research kind of revolves around looking at ancient life, things that are older than 300 million years and using computer-based techniques. So I tend to try and look at things that interest me fundamentally, but things that are major transitions or changes in, in the history of life. So um, Things like the origin of animals, the origin of life on land. And I think that those are fundamentally quite interesting because um, it explains how we got to where we are today in terms of the biology of the world. But understanding evolution more generally is incredibly useful for say medicine, understanding antimicrobial resistance. We do computer modeling of evolution that can help us with that kind of thing. But also everyday things that we don't tend to think about. So for example, most of our crops are pollinated by insects. If you want to know um, the impact that climate change is having on insects, the only time you can really look at that the insects have been under similar ecological stress to when, or to the stress they are up now is about 295 million years ago, during a mass extinction, where um, 95% of species, including a number of insects, went extinct. Other than that, insects have been fine. So for that reason, studying, for example, the fossil record and the evolution of insects can help us understand how they'll respond to things that are happening in the environment today.
7: It seems fascinating to someone like me because uh, obviously looking at how insects are affected by what's happening today, seems intuitively obvious, You, you observe them, and yet you're looking at similar things happening but hundreds of millions of years ago. Yeah,
6: so if we look today, Um, we're looking at a particular time slice, right? So we know insects are suffering. Um, What we don't know is how that will play out long term. So we can understand very well the immediate impact of our actions on the the animal life outside. What we don't understand is what impacts that will have long-term. And so the only way we can really get that long time frame to understand what is likely to happen from the climate change that's happening around us right now is to look in the fossil records. So it's kind of using that as a parallel to understand what's currently happening.
7: What are the ways in which the work you do particularly impinges on the environment or has environmental um, mm. implications?
6: Absolutely. So I would say there are were, there were different kinds of environmental research. We can look at how the environment is changing and its immediate impacts, and that's very, very directed towards understanding the environment as it is. And I consider what I do more of kind of a context for that. So the, the research that I do, looking at evolution in deep time, looking at how things evolve over millions of years, doesn't directly impact on our understanding understanding of the environment per se, but what it does do is it helps us to understand how these systems change in deep time and how life responds to changes in environment. So that's true of whether we look at the fossil record and see how mass extinctions have played out in, say, 295 million years ago, or whether we're looking at a computer model where we can suddenly add Um, quick change to the environment, cause a mass extinction and then see how different groups recover from that. Both of those things are contextual understanding for the environment although they're not directly researching the environment itself.
7: Absolutely, that's cool. It's interesting to see because obviously um, climate change is is a big issue and we're speaking Mm -hmm. at the time of the extinction rebellion process um, Mm -hmm. in London and around the world.
6: Um, Yeah and if you're working on fossils you can actually identify that we are We are talking in the sixth great mass extinctions. There have been five mass extinctions in the history of life on Earth, which are relatively well documented. There are probably more that we don't know about. But what we're seeing now at the moment in terms of the extinction rates is a direct equivalent to those. And these are events where 95% of all species went extinct. That kind of deep time perspective actually helps us put what's happening into a context. And the context is, well, the... The background to this is actually quite dark. I mean, it is a uh, an unparalleled event that's happening right now.
7: Sure. Yeah. It's fascinating and again to, to, to return to the topic of how you can look at you know examine what happened all those hundreds of millions of years ago and refer it to the present day. It's, it's it puts oh. it into a fascinating focus. Are you um, optimistic or pessimistic in terms of uh, climate change and the implications for us in you know going forward over the next however many years?
6: I don't know if I can answer that question. Some days I'm optimistic, sometimes I'm pessimistic. Humans have a great ability to work together sometimes and to improve um, uh, situations. They, there are actions we can take, whether we will do so or not. Like I say, depends on, on the day and what's happening in the world, whether I think that's achievable or not. I had a lecture last week where I was talking to students and I was talking about evolution. And there are some everyday things that people don't tend to think about that you can actually Feature in lectures to try and help understand some of these topics. So, last week we spent 20 minutes talking about why are chilies hot? Have you ever wondered why chilies are hot?
7: No, <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I have, no.
6: Yeah, it's really odd, isn't it? Um, you just assume they are. It's yeah, awesome they are. And, and there's nothing you think about. But actually, we are, as mammals, we are pretty much the only mammals that eat chilies, enjoy the heat of chilies. But these are the structures that are there to make things eat them, to spread their seeds which is kind of weird when you think about it, that you would have this structure that has this chemical in it that burns the mouth of mammals. But actually when you think about the fact that mammals aren't the only things that can spread seeds, it makes a lot of sense. It turns out the chemical that makes chilies hot, birds can't taste. So birds not only don't have these horrible teeth that will chew on seeds and will stop them germinating, they fly around so they spread seeds better. So the fact that chilies are hot is a evolutionary reaction to the need to have birds eat your seeds and then uh, spread them around rather than mammals and so those moments where you can explain some everyday topic which you may never have thought about i find really really rewarding
0: you can listen to the rest of russell's interview on the buzz blog page That's all for this episode of The Buzz. We'll be back soon with a brand new episode. For further information on what you've heard today, visit our website at manchester.ac.uk forward slash the buzz, where you'll also find links to all our social media. If you have any questions about today's episode, our email is fsemarketing at manchester.ac.uk. You can follow the faculty on Instagram and Twitter at uomscieng and search for our Facebook page and YouTube account. See you next time.